0: Good morning everyone it's certainly beginning to look a lot like Christmas isn't it um, there's there's many people behind the transformation of the Mosley suite and the introduction of what I like to think of as Santa's bling grotto out there and um, we'll be saying individual thank yous at a later time but it is a lot of work that's gone into this and we're so grateful to everyone for that um, Christmas season is well and truly upon us, and it is time, I'm afraid, to fully embrace that. Um, I myself have been embracing mince pies for the best part of 10 weeks now. Um, Generally, one of our good friends delivers us our first pack of mince pies around mid-September, and from that moment on, I'm just mince pies all the way. So who ate all the pies? Mike Blaber. Um, This this morning it's my privilege to get to kick off the Oasis Christmas season as well as continuing our preaching series we've been in all term which has been entitled Building Culture. Uh, What we've been looking at is the many characteristics of the culture that's formed when Jesus is king and front and centre. And it's a culture that we get to enjoy as a community together but also one that we get to bring to the everyday locations and activities we find ourselves in. And we've seen it's a culture of... Love and hope and power and justice and mercy and authenticity and rest and comfort. And this morning we're going to look at another key feature, which is faith. Faith, a culture of faith. And I just want to make two observations this morning about a culture of faith in Jesus' kingdom. And that is, number one, that it has a common center. The focus of our faith is always the same. And number two... It has many expressions, and kingdom faith can look very different in its outward appearance depending upon our current stories and circumstances and our individual personalities. So common center, diverse expressions, and often we see that commonality and diversity go hand-in-hand in life. For example, in 2016 we'll be remembered for many different things, but not least amongst them will be Britain's most successful summer Olympics of all time. Um, I loved the Olympics. It was a summer of success. And one of the things I love about the Olympic Games is always that though everyone's got the same common goal, Olympic glory, for those who actually reach Olympic glory, the way they express that moment is just very different from one person to the next. And that reflects their personality and something about the journey they've been on. So let's have a look at what Olympic glory looks like. For some it's giggling and romantic because their story is one of love that's brought them to Olympics, striving together, and they've had their golden moment. For others, it looks more like this. Collapse and exhaustion, but also a moment of brotherly solidarity. That's the Brownlee brothers. For others, it's kind of a silly face moment. Like all the tension's gone, and yes, I've made it to Olympic glory. For others, like Andy Murray, it's all kind of quite emotional and teary, because he's taking in the enormity of his success and also the cost of what it's taken to get there. For, for others, uh, this picture always reminds me a bit of myself, actually. It's um, <laughs> kind of rippling muscles and I'm the man moment because you're king of the world. And then the last one, um, just everyone together amazed that it came together and we actually did it against all the odds. And it's about hugging and bundling and enjoying the moment. And actually, don't we just love those moments when we get an unexpected gold? Um, Or like when, against all the odds, Britain actually wins a penalty shootout like these hockey girls did. Well, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, coined a word for moments like that, calling them a eucatastrophe. Um, Moments when a significant twist in events occurs for good. From dark to light, from bleakness to hope, a happy twist. The puppet becomes a real boy. Or um, Simba returns to the pride land and rescues everyone. Or Frodo manages to throw the ring into the fires of Mount Doom. That's what Tolkien called a eucatastrophe. But listen to what Tolkien says about Christmas. He says this, "...the birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history." And the resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. This story begins and ends in joy, and it has preeminently the inner consistency of reality. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true, and none which so many sceptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. The birth of Jesus is the turning point of history, and it's the eucatastrophe of our story, of yours and of mine. And so this morning we're going to get to spend some time looking again at what might be very familiar, but what I want us to do is to try and get under the skin of what we're looking at, this thing that really happened. And imagine that we were there in Roman-occupied Israel. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to Matthew in chapter 1, otherwise it will come on the screen, so don't worry. I'm going to read from verse 18. that says this. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. He did not want to expose her to public disgrace. And so he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here lies the focal point of history. In the West, we divide history into AC and BC according to the relationship of every event to this central event. We always ask of any moment in history, did it happen before or did it happen after this moment? In fact, you reference Jesus' birth every day, whether you're conscious of it or not. Every time you write the date in your notebook or on a letter, every time Facebook pops up with a memory, And all of those everyday things are saying whatever this event is, it has a particular temporal relationship to this event, the birth of Jesus. His birth stands as the plumb line of history. But when you think about it, the odds are so far against us ever hearing about the birth of a baby in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. I mean, how could that have become the centerpiece of history inspiring so much art and music and literature and study and architecture. Because Bethlehem was an unimportant town. I mean, I bet the innkeeper who provided the stable for Mary and Joseph never thought that he would be the, uh, a part in millennia's worth of school productions. I bet that wasn't what was going on in his mind. And actually, Mary and Joseph were unimportant people. And they were people who commanded very little respect in their day because what surrounded them were stories of infidelity and it being assumed that Mary had been fooling around. And Matthew's Gospel tells us the events of Christmas from Joseph's perspective, while Luke tells us it from Mary's perspective. Yet there's similarity to both of their experiences. Both of them find themselves in a stable, cold, hungry, tired, Probably afraid, unsure of the future, under a harsh Roman rule, no financial savings, no influence to exert, and yet both bewildered, staring at the most unexpected of miracles. A baby born without a human father, born of a virgin. You can imagine them alone in the stable as they gaze upon the fragile, vulnerable, dependent frame of a baby. No locks on the doors to keep him safe. No baby grow to dress him in, not so much as a Moses basket. I mean, at least Moses got a basket. And pretty soon that went viral. Now everyone's got one. We've put all of our babies in a basket, but we haven't put any of them in a manger because that hasn't caught on. Such humble beginnings. And yet Mary and Joseph were experiencing firsthand the catastrophe of mankind. The centerpiece of history, so significant but so fragile because silently, so silently, in that stable, in that lowly town amongst that humble company, the world became a different place. Larry King um, has been a very popular TV host in the US for a long time, interviewed loads and loads of people. But he was once asked, if you could interview anyone in history, who would you most like to interview? And his answer was, Jesus Christ, and he said, I would have just one question for him. Are you indeed virgin born, said Larry King. The answer to that would explain history for me. See, Larry King knows that if Christmas is true, everything changes. The world is not simply material. There's more, and there's much more. But things did not immediately seem to change much when Jesus was born. What what did the world look like at the time of Jesus' birth? Well, it was a time where the wealthy trumped the poor, where the strong oppressed the weak, where people hoped for political revolution to change and liberate them from their circumstances, but often were left disappointed. A place where power was measured by weapons and force of strength, where order was kept by separating and segregating people, and where each race and culture looked down on the others. Sounds quite familiar, doesn't it? Yet into that world so similar to ours, the U catastrophe of mankind occurred. God with us. Though the prophets had spoken of it, few people ever realized what God was going to do. N.T. Wright points out that um, no one really had made a link between Isaiah's prophecy and the promised Messiah. Virgins didn't give birth then. They don't give birth now. No one was expecting that to happen. Yet astonishingly, the promise was happening in that stable just as Isaiah had seen it. The virgin would conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God literally with us. This is truly mind-blowing. Because, you know, the people of God had known manifestations of God in the past, but often that involved fire and smoke or burning bushes or storms around mountains or maybe fire from the cloud that consumes a burnt offering. All of these different expressions showing that God is holy and unapproachable. But here in Bethlehem, God took on a digestive system and a beating heart and lungs that need oxygen. He, he breathed the same air as the cattle who were lowing, whatever lowing means. <laughs> sing these things thinking, think what does loving mean (laughs) infinite dot god took on confinement just let that sink in for a moment just let that sink in the bible says that he spoke the universe into being yet in bethlehem he let out the cry of a baby the bible tells us that he is the radiance of god's glory the bright morning star and yet he was born under the stars as they shone brightly for him The Bible tells us that he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lord of history. And yet he stepped into our history. And the Bible tells us he's holy God and his holiness is like a consuming fire. And and yet he's being held in the arms of a teenage girl. Silently, how silently everything changes. God came not in a palace and not in nobility and not to bring a revolution of ideology or economy or politics, not to overthrow a government or storm a city or build a wall. He came rather to save his people from their sins. Joseph is instructed, call him Jesus, which means the Lord saves. Now He came to shine a light into our dark hearts and to breathe life into our dead souls. To bring us back to God. He came to deal with the root of mankind's problem. Our sinful hearts that have pushed God away when actually all we need and all we desire really is him. We were made for him and can't do without him. And so as Fillmore puts it, he humbled himself all the way to become God with us so as to pave a way for us with God. Here in Bethlehem there is no dramatic coup of the high and lofty positions of power. Only a handful of people seemed to know anything about what was going on, just some peasants, some shepherds, a few eastern travellers, and those that they had spoken to. But you, catastrophe. No longer can God be thought of as aloof and distant and inaccessible and far off and unaware of our plight, no longer keeping us at arm's length. No, he's up close and he's personal. He's involved and he's active and he always has been, but he comes to share our experience of life and our hurts and our pains and our joys and our hopes. But more than that, he's shaping everything and he's committed to winning us back. How silently this wondrous gift. Because in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says this about Jesus. Jesus. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The summary that Adrian gave us just a few moments ago. This is the eucatastrophe of mankind, because his condescension was for our elevation. Christ is rich in every way, but he was brought low to share his riches with us, plummeting the depths of our poverty because he is the only begotten son of God, the delight of the father but he came that we may be adopted as children of God and be able to cry out, Abba Father, he's the fountain of all life but he came to pour his life out so that we may have life and have it to the full he's the prince of peace but he came to be a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering so that we might know in him peace that transcends all understanding He is the light of the world and he came to absorb darkness that he might heal our spiritual blindness, that we might see again, see God. He is the bread of life and he came to fill our hungry souls with the fullness of God. And he, the spotless lamb of God, came to suffer and die so that our sin might be removed as far as the east is from the west. You, catastrophe! Everything changes, turning point, hope for the world, centerpiece of history, the central focus of our faith, the cornerstone, Christ alone. This is what we celebrate. He has come, now everything changes, everything's possible. The sick healed, the dead raised, hungry fed, the far off brought close. It's hardly surprising that Peter, in 1 Peter, verse 7, says that our faith is more precious than gold because faith clings to him and cleaves to him and faith sees in the backdrop of christmas easter and all that god will achieve for us kingdom culture has as its central focus of faith jesus we're all about jesus we're all about him he's our common focus but what does faith in him look like If that's our common faith focus, how does that express itself? Well, it can look as different from one person to the next as the expressions of the Olympians when they get their Olympic glory. But sometimes I think it's easy for us to fall into the mistake of thinking that faith necessarily takes particular forms or particular appearances Sometimes we can think unless it feels a certain way or speaks a certain way or results in certain circumstances, perhaps it's not quite right. And if it doesn't fit into that stereotype, you can be left wondering why. What's wrong? What's going on? Shouldn't it be different to this? What's happening with me? But the Bible gives no such stereotype. Faith is simply seeing Jesus and resting your confidence in him. And the expression of that, though, will vary from personality to personality and life story to life story. And what I want to do is just take a little while now to illustrate that by looking at some of the key players in the Christmas story and applying that to ourselves. Now, I would love to get to read you the first couple of chapters of Matthew and the first couple of chapters of Luke. We're not going to have enough time, but I'd encourage you to to do that over the coming days and absorb this story. First of all, we're going to look at the shepherd's expression of faith. So Luke 2, Luke chapter 2, tells us of the experience of a group of shepherds upon the announcement of Jesus' birth. Now, once again, these guys are not exactly the movers and shakers of society. They're just ordinary blokes, staying awake while everyone else is asleep. Who, who does night shifts here? No, Okay, yeah, Roly does night shifts, and I've done that, and so does Paul. So a few of us do night shifts. These guys were just on another night shift, okay, okay? Um, watching over their sheep, looking out for wild animals, maybe for some thieves, but not expecting anything else to happen when to them an angel appears and says, I've got good news of exceeding joy. A a saviour's born. And then loads of angels join in and it's a case of peace to mankind on who his favour rests. And there's an angelic chorus. I won't try and sing that for you. But it's fair to say this was quite an unusual experience. Okay, maybe a handful of people in all of history have had anything like that experience of heaven invading earth. So it's fair to say that for them, perhaps, believing that this might be the eucatastrophe of mankind is not such a hard stretch. But in that moment, for them, everything changes because they realise God is real, God is active, God is with us, and this is good news for everyone. Faith. So, what did it look like for them? Well, for the shepherds, it was bold and it was loud and it was extroverted and it was even perhaps a bit reckless. So, we read in verse 15 that after seeing the angels, they just up and left straight away to go and find Jesus. No mention about what's going to happen to the sheep, you know. They just go. They've got bigger fish to fry. Interestingly, suddenly, the things that used to cause them concern, maybe some anxiety, and dictate their. Actions no longer bothered them. They discovered something so mind-blowing and transforming that it just altered their perception of what really matters. I'm sure that half an hour before the angelic visitation, the thought that a couple of them might take a nap and not watch the sheep for a little while caused quite a lot of controversy. All of a sudden, they've all gone. In Luke 2.17, we read that the shepherds spread the word about Jesus to all who would listen to them. And in verse 20, we read that they did eventually return to the sheep. Okay, normal life did continue, but they did so, glorying and praising God. And again, you just get the impression it's all pretty loud and extroverted. For some of us, that's what faith needs to look like right now. Bold and loud and courageous. Perhaps God wants to bring you into a new depth of understanding of the immensity of Christmas. God is with us there is a savior his name is Jesus and that does change everything and it is for you but more it is for all to hear about the message needs to go out peace to all men so go and make him known speak of him sing of him do it boldly and loudly and uninhibited and for some of us our personalities are such that boldness and extroversion and loudness don't come too difficult to us that's just who we are don't apologise for that. It's who God's made you to be. Of course he's going to use that. Let, let's, let's make him known. For others of us, that's not so much what we're like. And perhaps there are times when we have to just push ourselves to get outside of our comfort zone. Can I encourage us? Let's invite lots of people to our carol services so they might hear of good news for all mankind. And let's do that in faith. In fact, let's develop an increasing inviting culture within Oasis. Let's get people along to hear something of the wonder of what God has done. Maybe we need to start by getting them along to a calee, And maybe from there, all sorts of other things. In order that the good news of Jesus might be made known. It may also be that there are for some people, some bold, courageous, even seemingly reckless decisions that need to be made at the moment. Faith sometimes looks like that. Faith understands that everything's possible now because God is with us. And so sometimes faith looks like getting out of a boat and walking on water because Jesus has called you. Sometimes it looks like that. And it can seem reckless. I guess what I would say is God has given us community so that we can listen to and weigh and journey with each other through those bold and seemingly reckless decisions. You'll find in Luke chapter 2 that the shepherds talked and said, Shall we go? Yeah, let's go. So they did that together. Maybe for you, this is a moment of talking and thinking, God's maybe laid something on my heart. What do you think? Shall we go? Shall I do this? And let's also be speakers of faith into the situations that we encounter, maybe at work with our colleagues who are facing difficulties or our classmates at uni or our friends at the school gate or our friends in the recovery program. Because you speak good news in faith, that's the type of culture we're building. That's what a culture of faith looks like. So for some, faith looks externally like the shepherds, but for others, it might look differently. For example, maybe a bit like the magi, wise men. Okay? These guys we read about in the second chapter of Matthew's gospel. These guys are from the East, intellectuals, astrologers, maybe perhaps even mystics but they'd seen something change in the night sky and God in his mercy had spoken to them in a language they could understand, stars. And they set out to find out what was going on with the express intention of discovering the truth of God's plan and what he's up to. The evidence is that these guys would more likely be enemies of a Jewish king rather than followers, but they had an open mind and a soft heart. And theirs was a long journey covering many miles and involving many uncertainties. They had to ask questions and to find out what was going on. But they were compelled by this deep desire to know God. And then in Matthew 2, it describes the high point of their faith when they come to Jesus and they offer him gifts, which all of them represent an acknowledgement of who he is and what he's done. So they give him gold because he's the king of kings that, whose rule and reign should be welcomed by everyone. And they give him frankincense because he is God to be worshipped. And they give him myrrh because he is going to make a sacrifice that's for all men. The high point of faith. Faith often feels like a journey. I wonder where you are on that journey at the moment. Perhaps like the Magi, you're an intellectual type. You need to think things through. You need to research. You need to ask some questions. Here at Oasis, we want to build a culture where questions are really invited We want you to know that. There's no no no-go questions. Um, Actually, that's how genuine faith gets built, is by asking questions and bringing your doubts and going on your journeys. If you're new to Christianity, perhaps you're just looking in, it's really great to have you with us. We want you to know you're so welcome. Come on a journey and find out who Jesus is. And you too may see, oh, he is king, he is God, he is saviour. So maybe you already know and you love Jesus, but still perhaps at the moment it just looks to you like this is quite a journey, that there's lots of twists and turns. Maybe you're hungry for God, wanting more of him, but there are questions that need asking and there's a a road you need to travel. Much of my early adult life was a journey just like that, a journey through questions, a journey through doubts, a journey which was just full of this... Inner desire, this compulsion I had to know God. I just wanted to know Him more, and that took me on a journey that at times felt hard, but as a result led to a solid and assured faith. Be sure of this. Asking it will be given you. Seeking you'll find. Knocking the door will be opened. So if you're on a journey at the moment and it feels a little bit bumpy, that's okay. Faith is like that sometimes. And building a culture where that's okay is really important. But maybe to you, faith looks not so much like the Magi or the shepherds. Perhaps it looks a bit more like Mary's story. Let's have a quick look at Mary. You know, Mary was probably somewhere between 14 and 16 years of age when Gabriel appeared to her. And she was just an ordinary Jewish girl going about her daily life probably anticipating the normal, simple pleasures that Jewish girls would look forward to, like maybe marrying a good man, having a family, living a quiet, faithful life with God. Little did she know what was in store for her. Little did she know how her world was going to be completely turned upside down. You see, Mary was a remarkable woman. I would really love to be like Mary. Mary. In spite of the enormity of her task, her response to God's great plan recorded in Luke one thirty eight, was to say to him, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you've said. Just uncomplicated faith and total humility. And Luke then records this beautiful, private and joyful song of praise and devotion that she sings to God as she realized, he's seen me, he's noticed me. But as you read the first few chapters of Luke, you just get the impression Mary was really quite introverted and unassuming and not really accustomed to attention. At the birth of Jesus, when the shepherds came telling loudly of angels in the sky and he's going to be the savior of the world and all of this stuff, and probably some sheep bleating if they took any of them along with them. Um, It tells us in Luke 2.19 that Mary, in the midst of all of that hubbub, just treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart her personality was just quite different to the shepherds and the magi and her story was very different just quiet unassuming a posture of devotion and obedience but let me make this clear she was a steely tough lady steely and tough because her story would involve a lot of endurance and a lot of suffering a lot of disappointment I can't imagine that Mary's birth plan ever involved cattle and straw, itchy straw. No, that wasn't how she imagined this would happen. It can't have been nice. I, I imagine there were plenty of tears at the ridicule and the slander as people were calling her names, and harlot maybe. That must have hurt. I imagine that her mind was probably awash with uncertainty and concern and worry when she heard, we need to up and go now because someone's trying to kill the baby. We've got to get away from Herod. That, that type of thing is going to create an emotional response in you. okay? Christmas cards of peaceful images is probably very far away from the reality of that experience. I bet she wondered how they would survive with no money in hand and no friends willing to support them and no promise of a job or a home to go to in Egypt. But in all of that trouble, quietly, she determined to trust in God. I imagine that when Mary took Jesus to the temple as a baby, and this is recorded in Luke chapter 2, and she heard Simeon prophesy over him, it was probably equally exciting and overwhelming as he was saying, this is the Lord's salvation. This is the light of revelation to the Gentiles and, and the glory of Israel. And then I wonder how she felt when Simeon then turned to her and said, oh, and it, a sword will pierce your own soul. Can someone weigh that, please? You know, that's not the type of thing you want to hear, maybe. Just the heaviness of that, I suppose. But what consolation it must have been to treasure those moments of closeness to Jesus. God with her. What did faith in Emmanuel look like for Mary? It looked like the loss of home the loss of family, the loss of reputation. I'm sure it looked like tears and heartache and discomfort and the giving up of old dreams. And yet in that context, quiet, resolute, trusting God and devotion to him. Few human beings have been as inspirational as this woman. Just quietly treasuring him, even while experiencing all of the discomfort That she was having. Perhaps for you at the moment, faith in God with us seems to involve just a lot of endurance through a lot of pain and uncertainty and disappointment and misunderstanding. Do you know that's been something of my story this year? Didn't expect things to necessarily work out all like this, but in the midst of that journey, just being able to cleave to God with us to be honest, and to cry the tears that need crying, and to sometimes just state the things that need stating about, well, why this, and why that? And Joseph, you think we need to go to Egypt now? But in that place, quietly, just hanging in there, I wonder whether for some of us, we look longingly at other people, and at other people's stories, maybe even around us, and think, well they're experiencing a life of faith and doing impressive things and riding a wave of joy and they're not particularly shaken by life's trials and here I am just about hanging on in there pondering all that's happened and best I can just treasuring God can I just say if that's your story I just want to speak to you and say your faith is more precious than gold it is beautiful And in that endurance and in that determination to treasure Christ, God, with us, well, he draws close to you in that moment. Sometimes you'll feel it, sometimes not, with a well-done, good and faithful servant. Draws close to you. And others will see in you Christ in me, the hope of glory. You know, during my experience in the summertime when I was... um, burnout and struggling with um, anxiety and all sorts of things around my work, I was very transparent about that at work. Walking this walk of faith doesn't mean I've got it all together and no one can see a chink in my armour. No, walking this road of faith says, I'm a jar of clay, I chink all over the place. But look what's revealed in me, this treasure in jars of clay, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Glory. How beautiful it is to get to follow him and trust in him and know God with us. Here at Oasis, we want to build a culture where it's okay to be confused and to cry and to express disappointment and to say, I never imagined this would be my path. And it's not a slur on your faith. This is still you catastrophe because God is still with you. And that's why he's made us to be a family, that we get to journey these things together. So in in this room today, there are many personalities, many stories, many different expressions of faith. Some like shepherds, some like Magi, some like Mary, some not like any of those, and that's okay, and that's good. And we all have one common focus to our faith: Jesus, God with us. And so let's journey with integrity being who we are, expressing our personalities, being real about our story and together clinging on to the one who at the beginning of Matthew's gospel is declared Emmanuel, God with us. And the very last words of Matthew's gospel, he declares, surely I am with you always. Risen Jesus, conquering King, Son of God, ours. Why don't we pray and why don't we stand and then I'll pray. We'll close there. Maybe just helpful just to close your eyes, perhaps just put your hands out, ready to engage with God. Nothing magical about that. You don't have to do it. But let's just have a posture of openness to him. The Lord knows exactly where we're at. Even if this morning you walked in with a air of confidence that betrayed very little of what you're feeling. (laughs) God knows, doesn't condemn that, loves you. Or maybe you are feeling like I'm on top of the world and I just want to do something for him and God's bubbling all this stuff up within me. I'm like a shepherd, I want to just be reckless about this. Well, God wants to honour that too. Maybe you've got questions that need asking, you're on a journey at the moment. Maybe it's just harder than you ever thought it was going to be. Lord Jesus, I thank you, Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you that you said, Jesus, just before you were crucified and resurrected, you said, you're not going to leave us orphans, sending your spirit so that we may know God amongst us, God with us in our hearts, welling up so that we may cry, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, I want to do something for you. I feel there's this, there's this dream you've given me and I want to go for it. Or Abba, Father, how can I keep going? I thank you, Jesus, that your desire is just that we keep calling out Abba, Father, coming to you. Jesus, I want to pray for everyone in this room that Christmas this year would be a time of discovering the catastrophe of mankind once again, that we would see so clearly this incredible miracle of God with us, which has changed all of history and can continue to change our present experience, whatever that might be. I pray for those who want to just shout it out and be bold and extroverted. I pray you give them the confidence to, to do that and the security in who they are to do that. And I pray for those that are... Lord, needing to make some big decisions, I pray for your wisdom and I pray for faith to really propel those decisions. Lord, I pray for anyone here that doesn't yet know you but wants to, who's got some sort of stirring in their heart to know truth. I pray, Jesus, make yourself known that they may come to you and say, yes, you are God and you are King and you are Saviour. Or for those who are just on a journey at the moment of wanting to discover more and there are doubts and questions, I pray for grace for that and a continual desire for you. But Jesus, I pray for anyone who, at this moment, is just feeling disappointed um, and battered. And maybe who have been doubting the integrity of their faith because they don't seem to be able to carry the same laughter that other people can at the moment, or brightness. I just want to pray, would you draw so near to them, even in this moment, Lord, May they know the presence of Emmanuel, God with them. Even now, in their hearts, may they know that you work all things for the good of those who love you. And that's not just a twee expression. It's a commitment of the living God. And so that even in this moment of pain, you're with them, you love them, you're not going to let them go. No one can be plucked from your hand. Pray for that peace and that resolute assurance and confidence. We ask these things, Lord, in your great, wonderful and holy name. Amen.